Well, hey, good morning. Sorry about the feedback. Um, if you haven't already figured out, uh, this morning we're going to take a break from uh, the series that we've been in called Elements. And uh, I wanted to take a break this morning um, for Father's Day uh, to talk to the dads and the dads-to-be. Um, I don't know if you've ever, if you're familiar with the story of uh, Dick and, and Rick Hoyt, um, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty extraordinary story. Uh, when Rick was born, um, he was born uh, with pretty severe uh, disabilities, and the doctors told his parents, they said, um, your son's going to be a vegetable. Uh, he'll never be able to communicate. He'll never be able to understand you at all. Uh, he'll never, he doesn't have a chance at, at a normal life, a meaningful life, and so you might as well just put him in an institution and get on with your life because uh, there's very little you can do. And so his parents and his dad uh, came back and they said, no, 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 we're, we're going to raise uh, Rick like we would any other child. And so they took him home and they took him everywhere that they went. And they took him uh, swimming and they took him sledding and they took him on family vacations. And uh, you saw the, the image with them. They fastened a hockey stick to uh, his wheelchair and they'd play hockey with him and, and did all these things. And they, they watched him as, as he grew and, and could see that he was understanding more of what was going on, that he would, his eyes would follow them around the room and he would light up when they would, would do certain things and he would respond in his own way. Uh, and so convinced that there was more to Rick, that he was understanding, they, they fought the school system. The school system wouldn't let him in. Um, and so they fought the public school system, said, hey, we need you to look beyond his disability. There's more to our child. He, he can understand. Um, but they wouldn't let him in. And, and so along the way, technology was uh, invented and, and the family was able to get this technology where Rick was actually begun to be able to communicate with his parents with a, like a point-and-click uh, type thing. And then the computer would say uh, and speak for Rick. And they had taught him all along the way. They had taught him the alphabet and taught him how to read. And so finally, at the age of 13, Rick was allowed into the public school system after years and years and years of his family uh, fighting. And he got in and found out you know, that Rick did understand. And he went on and he graduated from high school. He went on to Boston University, graduated from Boston University. And it was, at, it was in school um, that he learned of a, a charity race for another disabled student uh, at his school. And he told his father um, that he wanted to be a part of that, that he wanted to take part. And his dad wasn't a runner. Um, but said, hey, if, if you want to do this, I'll do this. And so they ran this five-mile benefit race, and everybody thought that when they got to the end of the block, they'd turn around and come back. Uh, but they went the whole way. They went all five miles and finished second to last. And afterwards, his son told him, um, told him that, Dad, when, it, when we ran, I didn't feel like I was handicapped. And this started this incredible journey, you know, what we get to watch here, um, of this father taking his son uh, and running with him, and, and to date, it's pretty incredible. Uh, his father's now 66, and Rick's uh, just over 40, and they've run over 1,000 races together. And they've run uh, dual-thons and triathlons, including the Ironman, six times. And if you're not familiar with the Ironman, uh, it's a 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride, followed by a full 26.2-mile marathon in the same day. It's extraordinary. Uh, and they've done it six times. And, and when you saw them spraying the champagne, that was at the finish line. Uh, it is an incredible story of uh, a father fighting for his son and being willing to sacrifice anything for his family. And uh, it really sets up well what I want to talk about this morning, um, this incredible weight and call of what it means to be a dad. 
And, you know, as I was preparing this week, um, it struck me that there are people that are part of this community who have kids that are my age uh, or close to it. And, and so as I was thinking about it, you know, um, I'm young. I'm a young dad. And uh, I could tell you a little bit and speak from a little bit of what I've learned from experience being a father of two young girls. Uh, but I have a feeling 5, 10, 15 years from now, I'd probably say something a lot different. And uh, I have a feeling, you know, I might share something a little bit different when my girls are 13, 14, and they're convinced their dad's an idiot. He doesn't understand them. He doesn't know anything. They get it. He doesn't. Um, I have a lot to learn, and hopefully 20 years from now, I'll still be saying the same thing. Uh, So this morning, I don't want to just talk about fatherhood as a father, um, but I want to talk about fatherhood as a son. And there's a lot that I can share as a son. And uh, I don't know if you remember what it was like to be a young boy or to be a young girl and to look up to your dad. Um, But I remember it quite well. And I remember looking up to my dad and and just watching him in awe as he did all these superhuman things, you know, like ride a bike without training wheels, you know, or throw a spiral, wield a hammer, shuffle cards. You know, I remember being in in the backyard and watching him build our swing set. And I thought, this man is... God, you know, like he just built this thing uh, for our enjoyment. He's incredible, you know, and and I remember watching him play sports. He always played intramural sports, and, uh, you know, every time he made a shot, I was like, that's that's my dad, you know, Uh, being so proud of my dad, and and I remember one time in particular, um, he, my dad liked to dunk, which is impressive, you know, for any dad, I can't dunk, Uh, but he was showing off to some of the guys, he was a youth pastor at the time. And we were at the church uh, where he worked, this old, very staunch uh, Baptist church. And he was showing off to some of the high school guys that he could dunk. And, and in, this, in our gym, we had these very old glass backboards. And he didn't have, like, the breakaway rim, you know, like you have now. It was just, like, fastened to that thing. And so he went up, and he dunked, and the thing just shattered. You know, and glass went everywhere. It was in his, his permed mullet that he had at that time. <laughs> and I still thought he was cool, go figure, you know. And uh, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever done, you know, by any dad. And, uh, you know, the elders at the church weren't too happy about it, but I don't think he really cared uh, all that much. He took the shards of glass and he put them in this glass jar and he put it in his office like a trophy, you know. Or a middle finger, I'm not sure. But, you know, like for me, I would go in and every time I was in his office, I would take that jar off the shelf and I would hold these, these very thick shards of glass and just think to myself, like, that's my dad. And so I had a new life goal. My new life goal, of course, was to break my own backboard. And uh, that was going to be, like, I want to be like my dad. Someday I was going to break a backboard. And actually, coincidentally, I did accomplish that life goal shortly thereafter. Uh, But I jumped off a picnic table, and I broke our basketball hoop, and dad was not too happy about that. Um, But I could see in his eyes he didn't really care. He was kind of proud of me, you know. But I remember thinking... Looking at my dad, in my eyes, like he was, he was fearless, right? He was, he was all the things that I, I wasn't yet, but I wanted to be. He, he always knew what to say. Like he was full of, of charisma. He was never afraid. He was so courageous. He was all the things that I, I really wanted him to affirm in me, you know, as his son. I didn't just want to be courageous. I wanted dad to think I was courageous. You know, I didn't want to just be a wild man. I wanted my dad to look at me and say, you're a wild man. You're my son. I'm proud of you. But this week, I was actually uh, sharing with my dad. And, and, you know, looking back at my, uh, my dad, and I, this week I've been just reflecting a lot on, 
uh, being a son and, and him being my dad. And my dad was a really good dad. And he made a lot of mistakes, but he was always there. And he did some things exceptionally well. And I shared with him this week that I was going to, you know, just take a Sunday and kind of take a break from our Element series and talk to the dads and the dads-to-be. And he said something that has been bothering me ever since. And, and he, said, he said, you know, I think, I think in every man's life, in every dad's life, like when he gets old and his kids are grown and they're out of the house and he looks back on being a dad, that in some way every father feels like a failure. That every father feels like, in some way, that he dropped the ball. And that's been bothering me. You know, because in my eyes, that's not how it is at all. You know, if my dad feels like he dropped the ball and he was a failure, how come, me as a son, I don't see any of that. You know, I I don't see him as a failure at all. I mean, aren't kids supposed to have some input in that? Aren't we kind of like the judge? And and so I started thinking about that, you know, and I started thinking about it. If If it's true, if every father feels some sense of, of failure in some regard, that they drop the ball and they know it. Right, then, then what is it? What are those one or two things that he's got to get right that makes all that other stuff kind of go away? Right, what's the most important thing? What is it that my dad did that, that in my eyes kind of overshadowed the, the faults and the mistakes, right? the things that really set me up uh, for who I am and who I'm continuing to become? Uh, because the reality is my dad wasn't perfect. Right? He made, like all of our dads, he made a lot of mistakes, right? Along the way, he fell, he failed. Um, there are times that he made decisions that really hurt our family. Not because he wanted to, and not because he even meant to. Nobody could have seen it coming, but it's just the way that it played out. Right, there are times that he overreacted, times that maybe he made bad decisions, times that he said things that he, he didn't really mean, times in which he'd look back and say, you know what, I failed. Right? But there were a few things or a couple things that he did exceptionally well that made those things unimportant. And those are the things that I really want to talk about this morning because I believe that every dad wants to be courageous. I believe that every dad wants to be a good dad. That no dad sets out and says, you know what, I'm going to be a failure. You know, I'm not going to be present for my kids. I'm going to drop the ball. I really believe that every dad wants a story like the story of the Hoyt family, of Dick Hoyt, right? We want to be found courageous to lay it on the line for our kids and for someday for them to look back and to say, you know what, he's a great dad. He was a good dad. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. And uh, so I want to go to, if you have uh, a Bible or if you've got your smartphone, I want to go to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, just raise your hand, wave us down, we'll get you one. Uh, I need one up here, front right, uh, I need a Bible. Um, also, uh, if you have a smartphone, version is the, the application we use. And so I want to go to the story of the fall in Genesis 3 because here in this story we, we really find a, a passage of Scripture, a, a story that speaks to the heart of every man. And this is a story that speaks to uh, the origin of both our courage and our cowardice and the battle for both in the hearts of men. And, and, and what we find, Genesis 3 is just three chapters in the Bible. And so right before this, God has just created uh, the heavens and the earth in, in a beautiful narrative. He has he has created all of this. And, and then the, the coup de grace of his creation, he creates man in his own image. And God gives Adam this incredible mission. Right? He says, rule and subdue. Be fruitful and multiply. Adam, this is yours. Right? Go, explore, cultivate. Uh, this is your kingdom. At this time, no river has been charted. Right? No ocean has been crossed. No mountain has been climbed. 
It is a blank slate. There's a blank page waiting to be written. Right? But as we enter the story of Genesis 3, we find ourselves stepping into a world at war. You know, things seem, might seem uh, good on the surface, and so far so good, but we find out very quickly that Adam and Eve are, are not alone, that there's more going on in the story. And at some point after creation, after God created all of this, he said, it is good. Uh, evil had entered into the world. And we're not told exactly like how this happened. We're not told ex- precisely how or when evil entered. But we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that this epic battle rages in the heavens. And, and that Satan and his demons are ultimately, they're defeated by God's forces. God always wins. And, and they're cast out from heaven. And uh, his, the, the forces of, of Satan, the enemy, the adversary, is cast out. And as many as a third of the angels with him. And, and some interpreters believe this to be the original casting out of Satan. Like basically the origin of evil, this rebellion against God. And if that's true, then this is something that happened before now. This is something that happened in the mystery of eternity past. And to enter into this story, God creates all of this world. He creates us in his own image. He says it is all good. And now evil enters into the human story. We're told that Satan and his, and his demons are cast out. They're defeated, but they're not destroyed. And so now God has an enemy. And we have an enemy. And now, as we enter into this story, the enemy it takes on the form of a serpent and is about to approach God's most precious creation. So beginning in chapter 3, says this. Says so in the beginning, chapter three. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, "You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened." And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so in chapter 2, we find that God is, uh, as most of us know the story, that there's one thing. God, we have been given free reign over the earth. Adam uh, and Eve have been given uh, free reign to cultivate and to grow and to, to explore and to protect God's creation. But there's one thing they're not supposed to do, and that is to eat of this tree. So one thing that God asks them not to do. And, and this is a, a, a command. Significantly, this is a command given to Adam uh, before Eve is created. Right? And so God entrusts this command to Adam. He says, Adam, this is what I'm calling you to. This is what you are to do. This is what you're not to do. And then he gives him Eve. And so he entrusts Adam uh, essentially with this, this capacity. He trusts Adam to hand down uh, and to lead his spouse, his wife, in a way that honors God. Ultimately, it's his responsibility. He is to protect her. He's to fight her. He's to uh, fight for her. And he's to lead her in obedience. Yeah, he's not supposed to fight her. Just to be clear. Uh, he is supposed to fight for her, to protect her, to lead her in a way that honors God. And, and significantly, it, it's interesting, um, and, and I want to go there, is, is that Adam is, is called to do this, and then he's given Adam. And so Eve is, is a part of this creation, right, that he's supposed to cultivate and to protect. And, it is, and we're told that, that Eve is created as his helper, right? Uh, and, and the term actually, um, and I'm going to mispronounce this and butcher this because I don't speak Hebrew, fluently, um, but the, word, the term is ezer konegdo, right? and, and tr- typically when we read in translation, it says his helper or his helpmeet, 
but that really honestly fails to compare to what this term actually means. Uh, the term is actually notoriously difficult to translate. And the only other places that it, it, that it occurs in the Bible is talking about God. And it's talking about our desperate need for God when we need him to come through for us. So, so Eve, Eve is his, more than just a helper. He is, what it actually means, one scholar puts it this, this way, says that she is his lifesaver. All right, she is his lifesaver. He needs her. All right, remember, God creates the earth. He says, it's all good. But then he looks at the man who's by himself and says, that's not good, right? He can't handle it, you know? He needs Eve. Uh, so she is his lifesaver, his ally. They are meant to go at this uh, together. Um, but he is the one, ultimately, that's entrusted with the command to honor God and to not do this. And God trusts him to lead his wife, to protect his wife, to fight for his wife in a way that honors God. And so here we find that Eve is engaged in a conversation with the serpent, right? And the serpent is, is egging her on, giving her half-truths, dialoguing with her, contradicting what God has said. And the question then that we have to ask is, where is Adam in all this? Right? Where is Adam? This is his lifesaver. This is his wife. He has been entrusted with protecting her, with fighting for her, right? To leading her in a way that obeys God. Where is Adam in all this? The serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse 6, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made clothes for themselves. So Eve makes uh, an incredible mistake, and it's, it's really hard to overstate the gravity of, of what happened. This is uh, a turning point in the, in the story of human history and our relationship to God. Everything changes. And Eve should have known, right, the moment that the serpent contradicts God and starts to call his intentions into question, should have known, this is not good, right? I, should, I need to turn and run. I need to resist. This is, this is evil. But we find that, that the serpent speaks into something um, that is a vulnerable point for Eve. Right? We find that, that Eve, at her heart, she doesn't trust God. She doesn't trust that God's intentions are really good. She wants more. Uh, she wants to have more control, uh, more knowledge. Um, at her heart, she believes that God is holding out on her. And the serpent just kind of puts his finger right there. He says, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. God is holding out on you. He knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. And she eats of it. And there's a lot that we could say about this, but we're not going to go there today. Today, what I really want to hone in, in on is what we find immediately following Eve's kind of original sin, her eating of the fruit. Right after she eats, it says then that she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, believe it or not, the Hebrew for with her actually means with her. She, he was with her. It means they, he was standing there elbow to elbow. It means he was right there watching this whole thing. He's, he's listening to the dialogue. He's watching this thing unravel. And what does he do? Nothing. He does absolutely nothing. He doesn't say or do anything. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't lift a finger. He won't risk. He won't fight. He won't rescue his Eve. He just stands there. And in doing so, he denies his very nature and he goes passive. 
Continuing in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Right, significant. Right, he calls to the man. He calls to Adam. God knows what they did, right? God knows what they did. He's calling Adam out. Both of those terms, by the way, are singular. In the Hebrew, they're singular. God is calling Adam out. He's the one responsible. He has been entrusted to lead and to protect and to fight for his Eve. But he doesn't. He stands there. He does nothing. But the Lord God called to the man. He said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Adam and Eve, they disobey, they fall. Adam doesn't do anything, and when God shows up, he hides. And when God calls him out and says, Adam, you are responsible for this. What have you done? Where are you? He hides, and he blames it on Eve. Right? He totally abdicates his responsibility. He shirks it, and he says, she's the one to blame. But ultimately, it's, it's, Adam's, it's Adam's fall. And what follows is one of the, uh, one of the most heartbreaking passages in, in all the scriptures. And we find that God, God proceeds to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence. They are left to li- live with the consequences of sin. Right? And, and, and in doing so, in their disobedience and their sin, enters into the human story uh, physical and spiritual death, illness, suffering, poverty, injustice, uh, and every kind of evil. And guys, for this, for us, this is, this is where our story begins. You understand? Like, this, is, this is our story. Ever since that day, uh, every son of Adam Right, who was created in God's image to begin with, now carries this same failure in his heart. Right, we have been created to be courageous and to protect and to lead. Uh, but so often, behind our insecurity, right, behind our unwillingness to take initiative, right, behind the facade that we often put up, behind our paralysis, our apathy, our unwillingness to step up and to fight for our families is this. Right? It's our, it's our sin. It's our unique sin. Right? Many of us repeat this same sin uh, day in and day out. Most of us won't risk. We won't fight. We won't protect. And many fathers won't even stick around, which I'm sure we have a number of stories represented here. You know, one in four children uh, are born into a home without a father. One in four. Every year, one million children are mixed up in divorce. And one or both of the, the parents, right, they, they separate. And nine out of ten of those kids are left to live with mom. Right? In many ways, we are we're a fatherless generation. Right? We are sons of Adam in many ways. And, and the reality is that it's got to change. Right? We, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our world, it has got to change. And without the transforming work of God in our heart, to restore us to what we were created to do, it's going to repeat itself over and over and over. And the re- ultimate reality is, just as we find in this story, as we find throughout the rest of the Old and New Testament, the responsibility ultimately for our family to lead them, to guide them, to protect them, to step up and to be men, falls. I mean, that falls on our shoulders, right? 
A great example, I love this verse, and we won't get into it, but we've mentioned it before, but Ephesians 5, 23 through 25, right? It's just a great example. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But get this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? So this is, this is a picture of mutual submission, right? The husband is called to lay down his life, to die for his wife, to fight for her, to protect her, right? And she is to follow him. The responsibility falls on his shoulders, right? And when we fail to do this, I mean, our families, uh, they suffer, don't they? And the world suffers. In fact, get this. These, are, these stats are unreal. Consider this. 63% of youth suicides... 63% are from fatherless homes. All right, that's five times the average. So those from fatherless homes, they're five times more likely to commit suicide. 85% of all ch- children who show behavior disorders are from fatherless homes. 85%. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 80%. 8 out of 10. 14 times the average. of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. It's almost three out of four, nine times the average. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. Three out of four, ten times the average. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. Nine times the average. 85% of all youths in prison, almost 9 out of 10 come from fatherless homes. 20 times the average. Listen, dads, there's, there, there's no greater force in the life of a child than dad. Nothing can replace him. They're, dads, you carry more power in the world of your kids than anything else. And I don't mean to discredit moms, right? Because we need each other, right? His Ezra Konegdo. We need each other. She is the lifesaver. When a, when a kid falls down and he scrapes his knee, who does he run to? It's not the dad, right? He runs to mom, and she makes it all better. But when he wants to jump off the roof, where does he go? Right? He goes to dad, right? They need something different. You know, for those who are blessed to be in a family with both homes, uh, with both parents in the home, um, mothers are really an incarnation of God's love and his care and his affection, right? And kids need that. But what they need from their dads is, is different and it's, it's central to their identity, right? It's central to their, their world, their foundation. They need a dad who will fight for them, right? They need a dad who is a protector. They need a dad who, unlike Adam, will step up and say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done, right? Especially in those moments of crisis. And part of fighting for your family as dads, as dads-to-be young men, is not just putting a roof over their head and putting food on the table, although it's really important, but it's also fighting for their heart and soul. It's being the dad that they need. And in one of my favorite books, Wild at Heart, um, by John Eldridge, uh, he's an uh, author, a counselor. Um, he makes a case uh, and suggests that every son and every daughter needs something very specific from their dad, very, something specific that they really can only get from him. They long for that. Their soul longs for that. First and foremost, they need to know that they're loved. Right? We know that. They need to know that their dad loves them. But then... He goes on to say that every little boy, every little girl has a question that they look to their father to answer for them. Every little boy 
looks at their dad, and they want to know, do I have what it takes? Or do I have what it takes? Am I cut of the, of the stuff that, that men are made of? When you look down at me, are, are you proud of me? Do you see yourself in me? Right? Do I have what it takes? You know, when Jesus was, was baptized, the Father, we're told, speaks out loud. One of the only times, a couple times in the whole book that he does that. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? This is my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. You have what it takes. Right? Every little boy wants to know. Right, Dad, do you think I have what it takes? Right? And when they don't get that, it can affect the rest of their story. It can affect the rest of their life. Right? If, if they don't get, yes, you have what it takes, or worse, they get, oh, you're a mama's boy. You know? You're a wuss. Toughen up. You know? yeah, you're not my son. Right? You're mom's. Uh, all these different hurtful, wounded things. I mean, those, those, those guys, and we know them. Some of them are them, are walking wounded. And it's something that sometimes it, it never, never really leaves. Right? God, little boys want to hear from their dad. You have what it takes. And little girls have a different question. He goes on to suggest that, that little girls, you know, they need, like, they're, like sons, they need to know that they're loved first and foremost. But then they want to know, am I beautiful? Am I beautiful? You know, am I the apple of your eye? Am I lovely? Am I desirable? Right? Do you see me? And do you like what you see? Am I beautiful? You know, I'm a dad of a couple of young girls. My daughter Paige is not even four years old yet. And every day, I kid you not, every single day she is dressing up. As soon as she gets her hair done, as soon as she throws on a dress or a crown or whatever, she runs to me and she wants to show dad. Right? And she's looking for me to say, honey, you are gorgeous. You are beautiful. You're the most beautiful princess in the entire world. Your dad loves you. And I love it. She lightens up, you know, she straightens up, and then she's off, you know, to go play. But every single time she runs to me, and so I'm constantly telling her, you're beautiful, you're lovely, I love you. And when a girl doesn't get that from her dad, she can spend her entire life searching for it, right? If she doesn't get that from her dad, she, she will look for it in the arms of, of other men, right? Either she will deny her beauty, right, and distance herself from it, or uh, she'll learn how to use it to get that love and get that affirmation uh, from other men. You know, and, and research continually shows, the data continually shows that when you look at sexual promiscuity among teenage girls, that it almost always comes back to an absent father. And he may have even been in the home, right? But he was distant. Right? And when dads withhold their words, withhold their affection, withhold their love, uh, it can hurt. It can hurt a girl deeply. And the same, it's the same for little boys. You know, it doesn't go away when they get older either. You know? I can definitely say that as a 30-year-old guy. I don't like to admit it, but I will. You know, it's Father's Day. I, I still want to hear my dad say, I'm proud of you. you know? Even if he doesn't say it, I want to see it in his eyes. That you're my son. I see myself in you. I'm proud of you. Right? Part of being a dad and, and fighting for our families is, is fighting for their hearts and souls. And I love the way that John Eldridge puts it. He says, fatherhood is very, very simple. And I'll make it as simple as possible. He said, it's showing your kids that, you're lo- that they're loved and then answering their question. Answering their question. It's that simple. Answer it a thousand different times in a thousand different ways. Right? understand the question and look to your son and say, you have what it takes, little man. You're a wild man. You're crazy. You're my son. I'm proud of you. Right? And looking at your little girl and saying, you're beautiful. You're lovely. You're wonderful. 
I am captivated by you. It's that easy. And if you do that, if a kid grows up and they know that they're loved, and a little boy knows that their da- his dad is proud of him and he thinks he has what it takes, and a little girl knows that her dad loves her and thinks that she is beautiful, then that's the best thing that you can give a child. You know, I, when I was thinking this week, as a son, I can tell you that my entire life I never had to wonder whether dad loved me or whether he was proud of me. I never had to wonder that. Those words were on his lips relentlessly. He would constantly tell me, it didn't matter. If I was getting ready to compete, he would go out of his way before I compete or threw myself into something. You need to know, I'm proud of you. doesn't matter how you do out there. Just give it your all. But you need to know, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're my son. You have what it takes. Whether I wanted it or not, it was there. You know, in the high points, my greatest successes, and in the lowest points of my life, with my biggest failures, he was always there to say that. I love you, and I'm proud of you. You know what that does to a little boy? Right? It just opens up his world. It's unbelievable. You know, when it came to my dad's faith, I never had to question for him whether following Jesus was something he just gave lip service to or whether it was something that he really believed because of the way he lived. For as long as I can remember, my dad's faith was something that was marked by risk and obedience, right, and faith. Uh, He made some decisions that were intensely difficult for our family, Uh, things that had serious consequences on some of us kids. And some of those consequences were pretty rough, right? He, he, his faith led him to go places he didn't want to go, to do things he didn't want to do, but he did it because it was the right thing to do, because it was what he believed God was calling him to do. And as a result, as a young boy, I got to see God move as a result in a way that changes the young boy's life and faith forever. Right? I never had to, to worry about that. And my dad wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes along the way. And a lot of times that he would have called himself a failure as a dad, but he wasn't because I never had to wonder whether he was fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, whether he loved me, or whether he was proud of me. So this morning, it's just that simple. That's what I, if I could encourage the dads, right, and the dads-to-be to do anything, it'd be to follow Jesus with your life and do it in front of your kids, right? Do that first and foremost. Your actions will always speak louder than your words. But words help too. Or follow Jesus in front of your kids. Right? And then do whatever you need to do to tell them that you love them. Till you're blue in the face. I love you. I love you. I love you. You need to know. I love you. I know you don't want to hear it, but I love you. Right? And thirdly, answer their question. Right? Tell that little boy that he has what it takes. And that little girl that she is beautiful. And if you do that, I'm telling you, regardless of the other mistakes, regardless of the downfalls and the failures that will be inevitable of all of us who are dads, and someday will be, uh, you will be a wild success in the eyes of your kids. And lastly, uh, I want to say just a a few words to those who who didn't have dads growing up. And, uh, you know, I I would venture to guess that there's a number of you in this room looking at the stats. Uh, perhaps even most of us. When I worked for Campus Life, I would, um, I would have, I would ask kids, you know, just raise your hands uh, if you're close to your biological dad or if you live at a home with both parents. And inevitably, the vast majority of the room uh, would raise their hands to say, "I'm from a home where divorce, uh, or I don't, I don't know my dad." The vast majority of them. For some of you, uh, perhaps you carry the wounds of growing up without a dad. Uh, maybe dad was there, but he was never really present. You know, perhaps he was around, and maybe you knew him, 
uh, but he didn't really seem all that interested in knowing you. You know, perhaps as a little girl, he withheld his, his words, his affections. As a little boy, you never heard the words, I'm proud of you. you know? Or maybe for you, dad was just gone. He's out of the picture. He left when you were young. And although I don't know what that's like, I do know that that is a wound that can feel like it can't heal. That may never go away. And I want you to know that if that's you, you need to know that you do have a father. Your earthly father may have been those things, but your heavenly father is the antithesis of those things. That you have a father that doesn't make mistakes, and he made you. That you have a dad who knows exactly how many hairs are on your head because he created every one of them. Right, that you have a heavenly father that wasn't just given a child and charged with loving it, but created you because he couldn't help but love you. You have a, a, you have a heavenly father that we're told in, in Psalms 139 that, that knits you together in your mother's womb with his own hands, right? who created your innermost being. He was there. And that in his eyes and with his hands, that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. He's a father that is close. He's a father that loves you more than you love yourself. A father that will never leave you. A father that will never forsake you. A father who stepped up and fought for you and won. A father who was not content to watching you suffer without help, but who paid the ultimate price so that you could not only live and survive, but that you could have life and life to the fullest. And if that's you, if I'm talking to you, perhaps one of the most important and powerful life-changing things you can ever do is to ask God for himself whether that's true. To get away, open up the scriptures, open up your heart and just ask him, is it true? Do I have what it takes? Am I beautiful? It'll change your world. Ask him for yourself. If you're here and... um, you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, well, then healing starts there. And so with every eye closed and every head bowed, if you would pray with me. If you're here and you've never committed your life to Christ, you've never entered into a personal relationship with your Heavenly Father, then I want to at least give you the opportunity to do that. It's very simple is acknowledging that that God loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you to restore what was broken by the cowardice that was displayed in the garden. That God was not content to be separated from his sons and daughters, but that he sent Jesus to fix what was broken, to step into that, that hole so that he could be reunited with his son, with his daughter. It starts with just a simple prayer of saying, Jesus, I, I, I'm yours. I may not understand all there is to know about you, but I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. And I accept your gift of grace. I am hurt, wounded, and I need you. And I ask you to show me whether you truly believe I have what it takes Show me that you think that I'm beautiful because I don't believe it. Jesus, I'm yours.
Father God, I pray over the children represented here as a son who is incredibly blessed to have dad in my life and not just in my life, but involved. A dad who would fight for me, God, I, I thank you for that and I thank you for the dads. I thank you for the dads who are here, who are present. And this morning, I hope they know that just their presence alone in the home makes so many of those statistics irrelevant for their families. That, that, that being present, being home, fighting for our families is worth it and it's part of our call as men. And so God, I ask for courage and I ask that you would do a transforming work in our hearts because we know that we are sons of Adam and that in our weak moments we shrink back and we shirk responsibility and hide in the bushes. But God, that's not what we were created for. And so God, I pray a special blessing over the dads who are here. And I pray over those who will one day be dads, that you would raise them up to be mighty men, that you would woo their hearts towards you, that they would stop chasing stuff that only leads in death, but they would, be, they would start now to become the kind of men that their families will someday need. And Father God, I pray for those in this room who did not grow up with dads. I pray for those who bear the scars and the wounds of not having a dad who ever said I love you or at least never showed it or perhaps not having a dad who ever said I'm proud of you, that you're my son, that you have what it takes or that you are beautiful, you are gorgeous, you are lovely. And Father God, I ask that as we press into you that you would just affirm those things in the hearts of those here, that you would reveal yourself to those who have been longing for their creator but up until now have been unable to find you or understand you. That, God, you would impress upon the hearts of those who bear those wounds that they are your beloved sons and daughters, that you love them, that you are proud of them, and that you created them beautifully and wonderfully made, that you don't make any mistakes, and you made every person here. Father God, we love you, and we give you our hearts, our souls, our worship as we come before you now. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.